Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. You're listening to On the Environment, a podcast series from the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. For more information, visit the website at envirocenter.yale.edu. I'm Daphne Yin, a research assistant at the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. I'm in the studio today with Jed Kaplan, an expert on how humans have shaped Earth's landscape over thousands of years and the feedbacks between the Earth's land surface and the climate system. Dr. Kaplan is a professor in the Institute of Earth Surface Dynamics at the University of Lausanne in Switzerland. In 2012, Dr. Kaplan was awarded a European Research Council grant to further his work on human-environment interactions, drawing from fields such as earth sciences, geography, atmospheric chemistry, and computer science. He and his group are looking all the way back to determine the beginning of the Anthropocene, that is, the point at which we really started impacting the Earth as humans. The idea is that this work will help us better understand the scope of human impacts on the environment through greenhouse gas emissions and land use change, which is especially relevant in this age of climate change and increasing stress in natural resources. Dr. Kaplan, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. It has often been said that the Industrial Revolution marked the start of the Anthropocene. Your research suggests that we might want to frame this a little bit differently, that even before the Industrial Revolution, there were a number of other crucial land use revolutions. When do you think humans first really started having an impact? Human impact on large-scale environment goes back much further before the Industrial Revolution. If we want to think about how humans modified landscapes, we have to really go back to the emergence of modern humans from Africa probably 60 or 70,000 years ago, and the way that people precipitated what I call the first land use revolution, which is the human use of fire. When people started spreading out of Africa and moving into Eurasia and down to Australia, using fire really changed landscapes in very dramatic ways, particularly along ecotones, along gradients between forests and grassland. Those are the places where human burning could have the biggest influence on, the, on landscapes. There's some evidence from Australia, for example, that when humans first arrived, we see very big changes to the landscape, including uh, changes in forest cover and changes in the fauna that we find in um, archaeological and in sedimentary archives. The second major land use revolution also occurs long before the Industrial Revolution, and that comes with the development of agriculture and pastoralism, domestication of plants and animals. And I think this is when we probably really start to see, particularly in Eurasia, as old, as long as 10,000 years ago in some places, like in the Levant and the parts of parts of the eastern Mediterranean, large-scale deforestation caused by human activities. So we think about fire uh, as being the first land use revolution occurring sometime during the last glacial period. The changes would be subtle. It might not be completely obvious to an observer from far away. But when we arrive at the agricultural revolution, at the so-called Neolithic revolution, at the beginning of the Holocene, we're going to start to see first locally and then more widespread, really dramatic changes in landscape. The third land use revolution comes with the invention of metallurgy, starting with copper, followed by bronze and iron, during the last three or four thousand years. 
And this really fundamentally, again, changes the relationship between humans and their environment because suddenly now we are able to use metal tools that make it easier to cultivate landscapes, that make it easier to chop down trees. But at the same time, people have an increased demand for wood, for smelting, for wood, for um, creating charcoal and developing fuels that allows them to uh, that allows them to create these metal tools, um, which which changes their relationship to the land that they live on. So I think we have to really think about human impact on landscapes as being something that occurred long before the Industrial Revolution. So by the time we arrive at the Industrial Revolution, many landscapes, not just in Europe or China, but all over the world, are largely domesticated by people. People, the influence of humans is really pervasive all over the planet uh, by the time we get to the Industrial Revolution. And so when we think about the concept of the Anthropocene, I think that it's very important important to keep in mind that there were major changes to the planet that occurred before industrialization. Now, following the Industrial Revolution, the rate of change becomes much faster. And I think this is where we have to make some kind of distinction between the pre-industrial world, where there are major changes that occur, they change slowly over a long period of time, and what happens following industrialization, where everything is happening much, much faster. And so I don't, wouldn't necessarily argue for an early, early Anthropocene by definition, but I do think that we need to be aware of this idea that human impact is something that has occurred over a much longer time period than the last 150 or 200 years. Within that, when would you say we really start to have an undeniable influence on atmospheric CO2 emissions? Based on research that I've done, I would say that starting in the beginning of the Iron Age in Eurasia, so in Europe and and East and South Asia, about 1000 BC, so 3000 years ago, we start to have a real undeniable influence on atmospheric CO2 concentrations. Now, this is not necessarily the time when concentrations were rising fastest during the Holocene. That actually comes earlier, but I would argue that Concentrations during the latest Holocene, when climate is getting cooler, especially in the northern hemisphere, and we might expect CO2 concentrations to be dropping. Instead, they're stable. And that could be because of this uh, influence of anthropogenic emissions related to metallurgy and deforestation and so on. The first agricultural societies we see being accompanied by the clearing of forests, and I'm wondering if the data allows you to see some more definition in terms of the types of agricultural activities or crops. Yes, absolutely. So I think it's really interesting now, the whole field of archaeobotany is starting, and archaeozoology as well, is starting to take off because we have more and more records of not just what kind of artifacts or what kind of architecture are discovered at an archaeological site, but also what kind of plant seeds are discovered at an archaeological site. And that starts to give us a lot of information about how people were living, knowing what kind of plants they were eating, if they were, if it was wheat or barley or other cereals, if they were ate fruits, if they ate other kinds of vegetables, it gives us a real indication 
of how people related to the environment and what kind of environments they would have valued most as be as a economic resource. And so if you're if you're a cereal farmer, then there are certain kind of soils that are going to be the best ones for growing the best crop. And that's going to be very different than if you're growing rice as opposed to sorghum as opposed to wheat, for example. And so it becomes quite important to know how uh, precisely what people's diets were like in the past in terms of understanding uh, their relationship with the landscape and what kind of land they would have used, decided to use first or later on. Mm-hmm. And the same thing goes with, uh, with faunal remains. So we start to find more and more uh, catalogs of faunal remains found in archaeological sites. And this is incredibly useful information for the kind of modeling work that I've been doing where we're trying to understand the evolution of pastoralism, where and when were people using domesticated animals and how were they using them in a more extensive way or intensive way. And the animals that you find, animal bones that you can find in an archaeological site can tell you really a lot about how um, people might have used the landscape to provide uh, a resource for their domesticated animals. Would you say there are any traces of sustainable agriculture as we know it today, yeah. I, I mean, I think there are a lot of there are a lot of lessons for the past in mm-hmm. uh, from the past in understanding what constitutes a sustainable form of land use. If we think about, for example, the Nile Valley, people have been growing crops there for almost six thousand years. I would say that is a pretty sustainable form of land use. It's probably is it probably is that way because until the construction of the Aswan High Dam, there was a continuous uh, influx of new nutrient-rich sediment into the Nile Valley, which continuously replaced the nutrients that were that were taken away from the land through agricultural activities by people. So there are some interesting uh, lessons there for how we use uh, natural resources and how we manage something like wa- a water resource. And if we build a dam, we might we might put ourselves in a situation where without things like chemical fertilizer, we can't practice uh, sustainable agriculture anymore. Um, there, are, uh, there are plenty of other systems in the world. There are very, very old agricultural systems in Europe, systems that have not really changed much since the Iron Age over the last, say, two or 3,000 years, where we see agro-pastoral systems, people, um, people with small uh, fields, where they either where they alternatively grow cereals or pasture animals or systems of transhumance, for example, that exist in the Himalaya or in the Alps, where that have been going on in essentially unmodified form for millennia and really in some ways constitute a sustainable way of using land. Now, whether or not that is productive enough to feed the very high populations that we have now uh, is a different question. And I think this is always this is always the balance that we need to strike nowadays when trying to understand how do we, at the one hand, have a sustainable agricultural system that, on the other hand, fulfills our uh, requirements as a as global human population for the food and energy that we need from that we need to extract from the landscape, and that's that's a challenge for sure. Mm-hmm. That's definitely a question that we're grappling with our own work here. Um, aside from management, do you see parts of the world that have been managed by humans falling back into nature after human abandonment, or 
have landscapes shaped by human activities usually just experience an intensification over time. You only need to look here in New England as being a great example of a landscape that is maybe more natural, quote unquote, than it was 100 or 150 years ago when this landscape was much more deforested when a lot of the land a lot of the landscapes of eastern north america of the eastern seaboard were under various forms of intensive agriculture and once the midwest and central us opened to more industrialized form of agriculture it became unprofitable to have farms to to do much farming in the say new a landscape like northern new england and so a lot of um a lot of areas have much more forest cover now than they did in the 19th century and i think this is a real fascinating um issue it's so-called these so-called forest transitions where we find following urbanization and industrialization of society a recovery of forest ecosystems and it's happened all over the world probably in europe the forest the initial forest transitions already occurred maybe 200 years ago in the early 19th century or even late 18th century when minimum forest cover was realized followed by land abandonment of the most unproductive lands and intensification on the more productive lands. Forest transitions are still happening nowadays in Central and South America and Southeast Asia and in other countries that are experiencing rapid urbanization and a transition from more agricultural um, subsistence-based economies to more uh, industrial economies where agriculture is a, is is an industrial outcome or industrial product. You stress in your work that the persistence of human impact on the environment uh, follows us over time. So even activities before the Industrial Revolution still have ramifications for the land today. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about any irreversible damages that you see. There's some new research being done around planetary boundaries led by Rockstrom, which basically defines boundaries where if we do pass them would create irreversible environmental changes. Um, And I'm wondering if there are damages that we have already brought about that are like that. Yeah, I think we have some good examples in the modern world of landscapes that are have been irreversibly affected by anthropogenic activities. A couple of ones that come to mind are uh, landscapes where soil erosion has been has as a result of unsustainable agricultural or pastoralism practices has led to landscapes that are largely denuded of soil. So if you go to some parts of the Mediterranean, for example, where you have hard limestone bedrock. You can look at a landscape which looks very rocky and very dry. Um, Same in North Africa. And I think that these type of landscapes are landscapes that were brought past a tipping point through human activities. And it's quite possible that at least under under timescales that are relevant for human activities, let's say in the next one or two centuries, the soil that was once there that supported Uh, different types of vegetation is not going to come back and so what we're left with is landscapes which are not not unvegetated they're not really desertified but they are they they harbor they host a different kind of vegetation than what would have been there before less productive vegetation because less there's less soil to hold uh, rainwater for example Another example, maybe a more modern one, is the salinization of soils caused by over-irrigation. So there are examples from California and from the Middle East where if soils are uh, 
unsustainably irrigated, then they accumulate salts. And when those salts accumulate to a certain degree, then they cannot support uh, irrigated uh, agriculture anymore. And that becomes a serious problem because those lands essentially have to be abandoned. Uh, there's no real way to restore uh, very heavily salinized landscapes uh, that were over irrigated. So we do have to be careful about tipping points. I think in the in the context of what Johan Ruckström and his colleagues have done, they talk more about, say, climate changes or global changes that could be caused by human activities. For example, if we put too many too much greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. But there are certainly lessons to be learned from the past about unsustainable land use practices leading to erosion, salinization, or even desertification that caused at least locally tipping points or an irreversible changes to landscapes. Speaking of climate change, there are a number of growing efforts to counter it by saving and in some cases regrowing the world's forests. Uh, and the idea there is that forests can sequester carbon dioxide. You've done quite a bit of work looking at deforestation, and I'm wondering if there are any lessons that we could draw from there. Yeah, I think afforestation as a way of removing or sequestering carbon from the atmosphere is, of course, a short-term measure because forests themselves only accumulate carbon for a century or so, and then they come to and come into equilibrium with the atmosphere. So we need, we also need, given the amount of fossil fuel that we consume, we need some more longer-term sinks of fossil fuels in order, uh, longer-term sinks of fossil fuel carbon dioxide uh, emissions in order to offset what we're putting into the atmosphere. Nevertheless, afforestation can be a very useful way of mitigating short-term carbon emissions. And I think that there are examples in the past, perhaps, when we think about the afforestation of the Americas that occurred naturally as a cause of the collapse of the indigenous populations of the Western Hemisphere following European contact and the decimation of the native, the indigenous populations by disease, by smallpox and other diseases. There was a huge afforestation event that seems like it might have driven an uptake or reduction in atmospheric CO2 concentrations around that time period. And I, do, I think that we, can, we have seen from that that there is a power in nature to absorb CO2 out of the atmosphere and put it into the terrestrial biosphere in a way um, that, can, that can perhaps offset emissions in other parts of the planet. Now... How much of that really is relevant to the present day is, is, is hard to say. I think there, there are um, many other reasons why we should be interested in afforestation, in particular things like air quality and preservation of other ecosystem services like clean water and providing spiritual and recreational opportunities for, for humans. And so I think, and, and, and animal habitat and habitat for wild animals. So we're not the only organisms that live on this planet. So we, in some way we deserve to give the, give the other organisms also a chance to have a habitat. And so if we can think about doing afforestation and think about doing it in sensible ways, not just growing monocultures of individual, of the same types of trees and plantations and straight rows across large landscapes, but rather trying to preserve not only forest, just 
to have trees, but forest as a way of harboring biodiversity and of um, providing diverse habitats for other kind of organisms, animals, and plants is is a real goal that we should we should work towards. And it would be something that will that will potentially have not only positive benefits for let's say greenhouse gases and the carbon cycle, but also for many other aspects of 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 both human and natural systems. Mm-hmm. And in terms of connecting your work to all of these different concerns of conservation, biodiversity, climate change, are there areas you think that deserve more research that we still don't quite understand? And if we could answer these questions, we could get some some more progress on this front. Yeah, I think I think one of the things that has come out of a lot of the research that I've been working on is the fact that the carbon cycle and the historical changes in the Earth's land surface really belie simple explanations. There are so many different processes that we have not really studied in detail. For example, I mentioned earlier in the in our discussion about soil erosion. We don't really know what the net effect of soil erosion is or how important soil erosion has been on large-scale landscapes over the last five or 6,000 years. We know we, we definitely have evidence, as I mentioned before, for example, in the Mediterranean of landscapes that experience a lot of soil erosion where there's very little soil left. We also have evidence from other places that even though people have been cultivating them for thousands of years, it doesn't appear as though soil erosion has done very much to the landscape and the landscapes are still very productive agriculturally. We also have evidence that a lot of sediment, terrestrial sediment, is trapped in estuaries and river valleys and other kinds of alluvial systems, and that has that contains in it a lot of carbon. And so it's possible that there's a there is a sediment source and sink of carbon in the Earth system, and we don't really know what the balance of that is. If it's if the sink is greater than the source, or if the source is greater than the sink, and I think that's something that we really need to do much more research on because it's still quite relevant for the present, for the future. Soil erosion is a very important topic when we think about sustainable agriculture and about preserving soil nutrients and water holding capacity. And we'd also really like to know what role does soil erosion play in the carbon cycle at large scales, at continental to global global scale. So just to give just to give one example, I think that's something that could be that really requires much more research. Um, I think we also don't know very much about how wildfires will evolve in the future. This is another very important topic. I think wildfire is obviously something that causes a lot of economic damage nowadays in certain parts of the world, but we would very much like to know whether or how wildfires will evolve in the future with changing temperatures, with rising temperatures, with changing precipitation patterns and increasing carbon dioxide concentrations, all of which will influence vegetation and superimpose on top of that are human activities and attitudes with respect to wildfire, which are so important in many of the populated parts of the world when it comes to influencing fire regimes. So we, we need to study much, much more the relationship between climate, CO2, and fire, and how human interactions with fire will change uh, when we want to think about how ecosystems will evolve in the next, say, 50 to 100 years. And for the students or professionals who are hoping to help solve these 
these problems, what would you say would be a good entry point? I think it's. I think one. Of, I think one of the keys for a student who's interested in, in environmental issues um, from a interdisciplinary or scientific viewpoint nowadays is to keep an open mind and to really be curious about learning and about taking ideas from other disciplines with them to their own particular field of study. And so it's it, there's still a lot of very disciplinary thinking in academia and in research in general. And we, and we very much need to overcome that when we want to study environmental change in the past, present, or future, because we always have this very multidimensional, very complex multidimensional problems that we are trying to solve. And it's not enough to simply be a good soil scientist. You also really need to know about how does agriculture affect soils? How do economics affect agriculture? How does um, history affect economic decisions? And so on and so on. And I think in that sense, having an open mind and trying to take get exposure to as many different disciplines as possible, either as a student or as a um, professional in the field is very important in terms of trying to see the linkages between what it is you're particularly trying to study and what's the bigger picture of how environmental change and human changes will affect ecosystems and that's that would be my that would be my advice keep an open mind okay great uh, I guess just a closing question then uh, what what kinds of things are you and your group hoping to tackle next Good question. We have we have a really exciting project going on now where we are trying to understand the evolution of African ecosystems. Africa is a huge continent with a big variety of tropical and subtropical ecosystems, and a lot of those have evolved in the presence of humans for as long as humans have existed on the planet. But in particular, we have big transition in African environments that occurs over the last 3,000 years with the Bantu, expan- the Bantu expansion and the spread of the African Iron Age. And I find this a very exciting project because we are really trying to understand how changes in subsistence lifestyle, how the transition from foragers, from hunters and gatherers living in Africa to farming and pastoralism in Africa changed and influenced the development of the African landscapes, which nowadays are sort of iconic in some ways for preservation of megafauna and and also hot spots for the sensitivity of humans to environmental changes. So in Africa, many people are still living very much at the at the edges of of sustainable forms of land use and of survival, if you will, when it comes to a coupled uh, environment, but when it comes to the their their uh, subsistence with respect to the environment, and so this is this is an exciting area where right now we're trying to understand: can we determine were there times and places in the past when societies were resilient to environmental change or climate change or environmental variability? And were there times and places in the past where societies were very sensitive to small changes in their environment? And I think if we can 
find those lessons from the past, we may well be able to apply them to our understanding of what's going on at the present and possibly in the future to give us some warning signs for, oh, this could be a bad time for um, humanity or natural systems, wild animals or something mm-hmm. and so on. That sounds like really interesting work. And, and once you release results, we would love to see more of that. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much, Dr. Kaplan. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here.